0: Welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. So today we're going to be reading through Hebrews, right? 3, 1 to 6. So Hebreus 3, 1 até 6. Would you please stand for the reading of Word of God? Hebrews 3, verse 1 to 6. So it says, Pelo que... Irmãos Santos, participantes da vossa vocação celestial, considerai a Jesus Cristo, apóstolo e sumo sacerdote da vossa confissão, sendo fiel ao que o constituiu, como também o foi Moisés em toda a sua casa. Three, porque todo, porque ele é dito por digno de tanto maior glória do que Moisés. Quanto maior honra do que a casa tem aquele que o edificou, porque toda casa é edificada por alguém, mas o edificou todas as coisas é Deus. E, na verdade, Moisés foi fiel em toda a sua casa, como servo para testemunho das coisas se haviam de anunciar. 6. Mas Cristo, como Filho, E sobre a sua casa, a qual somos nós, se tão somente conservamos firme a confiança, a glória da esperança até o fim. Essa é a palavra de Deus. This is the word of God.
1: Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be here together. Lord, would you speak clearly to us? May your Spirit talk to our hearts, Lord. And Lord, ultimately, we desire that Jesus would be glorified in all that's said and done here. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning. Um, bon dia. I'll be preaching in English today. Uh, <laughs> If, uh, if you're new, welcome. My name's Kevin. I am the pastor here of Church at the Well. I'm excited that you're here. We've been going through the book of Hebrews just kind of systematically and slowly, and we should be done in about four years, so just stick with us. Um, the purpose of going through the book of Hebrews, I, I like preaching through books of the Bible, and I've actually never preached through the book of Hebrews, so this has been a really cool book so far. I've studied it, obviously, but never preached through it. Um, The idea behind this series in Hebrews is understanding the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus in all things. So we called this series The Greatest. And um, so far we've covered quite a bit of things. The author of Hebrews has basically introduced Jesus to us. We've talked about his deity. We've talked about his humanity. We've talked about how we become part of his family. We've talked about his sovereignty. We've talked about Jesus being creator of the world. it's, it's a little bit overwhelming when we think about who Jesus is and what He was willing to do. We spend a lot of time where the author of Hebrews asked us to consider even thinking about Jesus and compared to things like angels. And I mentioned to you that the whole purpose of that from our context comes down to how do we how do we bring Jesus into a culture that says it's spiritual but not religious and is Jesus more important than our even thoughts on that and now the author of Hebrews is going to kind of dive in a little bit and start talking about the supremacy and sufficiency and the greatness of Jesus over an individual named Moses now I don't know who's grown up in church world. I don't know if you've seen movies about Moses. Hollywood has made a few. Some of them are decently accurate. Some of them are horribly inaccurate. Regardless, if you haven't even grown up in church world, you've probably heard the name Moses, right? And so I'm just gonna give you a quick background before we dive in, just so you understand why the author of Hebrews is attempting to make this argument. Moses, has an interesting life. You can read about this in the Old Testament. I'll encourage you to. Uh, Moses has an interesting life. He uh, grew up in this, this time when Egypt was in control of everything. Um, there was a kind of a, a verdict or a law that was passed that as the Hebrews were in slavery to Egypt, that uh, many would be killed Moses was slotted to be killed I won't go into all the politics of that and through some really interesting and bizarre and sovereign ways Moses is able to survive he finds himself being raised in the house of Pharaoh um, almost as a son he learns how to interact politically with what's going on he's educated and then the Lord ultimately calls him out of that and you've probably heard this is the movie version right set my people free where Moses is trained up and then brought back to help the Hebrews come out of the bondage of slavery and we all know that story um, this is where Hollywood really likes. You can picture the Red Sea parting and walking across and all the dr- drama that goes around that. But where Moses really, I mean, that's important, but where Moses really impacts the church as a whole is in him bringing, the Lord uses him to bring the law to the people of God. Right? So we have Moses. Bringing the Ten Commandments. We have Moses teaching what it looks like to make sacrifices. We have Moses, and everything that Moses does is basically kind of instituting this culture, this people group, this understanding of what it looks like to live in the presence of the, of the Creator Lord. And everything that all of this law and all of the sacrifice, the sacrificial system, and all of these things come together to help us understand that we need Jesus. And we've talked about this so many times. Where, When we're studying the Old Testament, if we don't see Jesus in it, then we're actually misinterpreting it. Because the purpose of the law was to help us understand that we can't do it on our own. That it's impossible. That the Lord says if you want to save yourself, then you have to be perfect. And here's how you have to be perfect. You have to follow this law perfectly and we can't do that. And so the law in the Old Testament is this desire, it's supposed to create this desire and anticipation for the Savior to come. And all this comes through Moses. So if you think back, like after Moses, the law is going, before Christ comes, whatever period, it could be the time of the prophets, it could be whenever, whatever period you like in Old Testament history, Moses becomes a hero. He's the one that the Lord uses to begin this process of helping them understand who he is and and how to deal with sin and and help them understand who they are as individuals. And so if you're growing up in like a Jewish community back then, Moses is this, I I mean, I don't know how to describe him. He would be similar to like whoever we elevate up in our culture. It would be kind of the rock star, you know, I want to be like Moses. Right? It could be Hollywood, it could be uh, a superhero, it could be anything. But when we viewed Moses, they viewed this individual that God communed with and used to impact the entire world. And so Moses is this big character. And we need to understand that in order to understand why this is so significant. All right, let's dive in. So if you haven't turned to Hebrews chapter 3, go ahead and do that verse 1 therefore holy brothers you who share in a heavenly calling consider jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession we begin this passage chapter 3 with this exhortation is this encouragement and it starts with therefore. And I've, I tell you this every time we see a therefore, when we look at the word therefore in Scripture, circle it and start reading backwards, meaning it's a conclusion to something that we've already read. There's here's the evidence or here's the facts or here's what's going on. And then the therefore is the, the statement that's supposed to grab hold of us, the one that's supposed to help us understand the application to what we've just learned. So when we look at the word, therefore, it pushes us back to the previous verse. I mean, it pushes back all the way to the beginning of Hebrews, but I won't go back that far because we don't have that kind of time. So if you go back to verse 18, we ended last week with this. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. So we ended last week with understanding that Jesus relates to us. He, He came, He died, He lived. He rose, he lived in this sin-cursed world just like we do. He was tempted like we are tempted, but he was successful in never sinning. And he understands what we go through. And we talked about this a lot last week. He he gets it. He knows the struggles that you had this last week. He knows your fatigue. He knows your frustrations at work. Right? He knows what it's like to work for somebody that you don't necessarily like. He knows what it's like to to be tempted to bring idols into your life. He knows what it's like to to believe that comfort is everything. He knows what it's like to, to have this temptation of the excuse of saying, if I just could do this, then everything would be perfect. He knows what it's like to be sick. He knows what it's like when we have to deal with this sin-cursed body and this sin-cursed world. He knows what relationships are like. He knows the struggles behind all of that, and he really that he can help us as a result. So, based on all of that, chapter three begins with therefore because Jesus understands because he relates to us because he's lived it. We have a God that that cares and is compassionate and understands. Therefore, holy brothers, who? The church, the the individuals who understand who Jesus is, who understand that He understands. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling. We'll talk about that in a second. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. This is going to be the theme of everything today consider jesus like it seems very simple he understands so we need to consider that but when he says consider jesus what he's what he's asking us to do is consider jesus in everything how much was jesus considered in your life this week i mean some of you may go he was considered in everything and that was the first place i went and as I stepped into a situation or as I was trying to make a decision, Jesus was considered. Some of us may go, wow, when I really, if I'm really honest with myself, He was considered very rarely. He was considered maybe while I sat down for a meal and prayed. Jesus, thank You for food, which is a great prayer. But was He considered with anything else? Was He considered in your day-to-day activities? Was He considered when you did feel tired, depressed, discouraged, overwhelmed? Is He the first one that we consider or is He just kind of on the list and after we've exhausted everything else then we find ourselves coming to Him to consider what He can offer in the moment? Consider Jesus. now. One of the things, it's easy for us to think, okay, and just the way I've expressed that, it's easy to go, wow, I should have considered Jesus more this week, and now I feel guilty, and I just, like, how do I do this? And I'm overwhelmed, but remember, this is an exhortation. He's talking to those of us who know who Jesus is. He's reminding us of the privilege. He's saying, look, you have access to the Creator of the world anytime you want. Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm always with you, always. He says, I've, I've got purpose for you. I've got plan for you. I've got mission for you. I have reason for what's going on in your life right now. He says, I'm sovereign enough to control everything. We have access to Him. We have access to the Creator of everything. We have ac- you have access to your Savior whenever you want. You have the privilege of considering Jesus in every area of our lives. And this is supposed to come across as an encouragement. The author of Hebrews is saying, "Look." He even describes Him in a different way. At the end of verse 1, He says that Jesus, he considered Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The apostle and high priest of our confession. I I thought about this for a while because I can't find anywhere else in Scripture where Jesus is called an apostle. Like, I looked. Now, you might be able to find that. If you find it, come let me know. But in this moment, the author of Hebrews first describes Jesus as an apostle. And when we think about apostle, you think, okay, what is the purpose of an apostle? Why is an apostle necessary? An apostle represents God to man. So the apostles came. Like if we think from our context, the easiest thing for us to understand would be the apostles that followed Jesus. What was Jesus doing? He was teaching them about himself. Why? So that they could pass on what they heard and saw and learned. So Jesus, God, is giving information to the apostles who then turn around and give information to the people. It's this representation. God uses prophets, apostles, to help us understand who He is and why He does what He does. He reveals Himself that way. There's so many cool stories where Jesus as an apostle was teaching those that were following Him and they were shocked by what they heard. Right? Like the stories when Jesus would... would, would teach something. And they would say, this is a really hard teaching. I can't follow that. And then what Jesus would be saying is, oh, since you can't follow that, I'll go ahead and change it, right? No, He says, this is who I am. I'm here to show you who God is. I'm here to show you who the Creator is. Jesus says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. So one of His roles on earth through this special revelation of the virgin birth, and we've talked about that already, and and all of the cool stuff that Jesus did, is He's revealing Himself to us as an apostle. He is the apostle of apostles. It also says that He's a high priest. He is our high priest. What is the purpose of a priest? The purpose of the priest is to represent mankind to God. The priest in the Old Testament intercedes for the people. In the New Testament, as under this new covenant, as Jesus is described as our High Priest, we realize that He's the one that's representing us to the Father. It's. He's the intermediary. He's the one that we go to. He's the one that sits at the right hand of the Father and, and says, That's my brother, my sister. This is my family. He defends us and intercedes for us. When the accuser comes and says, How can you possibly love this dirty, rotten sinner, Kevin Scott? He says, Because I died for him. And he's put his faith and trust in me. He's mine. that's what he does as a high priest. What's fascinating about thinking this way is that when we listen to this exhortation of saying consider Jesus and then we realize that he he helps us understand who our creator is as an apostle. And then he represents us to heaven. You know, why wouldn't we consider him? Like in my... Times of need, when the accuser comes. All right, so let's just get real. You did something this week you wish you hadn't. You're like, how do you know that? Because I did too. We're human beings. Dirty, rotten sinners living in this sin-cursed world. You're going to make bad choices. It may not have been life-altering decision, but you can look back and go, I wish I wouldn't have said that. How about this one? I wish I wouldn't have said it that way. Sin in my tone, right? I wish I wouldn't have participated in this. I wish I would have taken the opportunity that the Lord gave me to express who he is to this individual. It was clear and I didn't do it. We have sins of commission, things that that we shouldn't do. We have sins of omission, things that we should do. And somewhere during this week, probably, I'm being really generous because for me, it's like every day. Right? What do I wish I hadn't done today that I did? And then the this is what happens when that occurs as a Christ follower. There's this thing inside of us that produces guilt. Well, it's not guilt any longer, because as Christ followers, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and the Holy Spirit is saying, "Why'd you do that? Like you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. You don't need to do that." So we. We kind of take what used to be guilt and now call it conviction. The Holy Spirit is saying, we can change this. And what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit's conviction? For us to consider Jesus. But what often we do is we don't consider Jesus in those moments. We consider, how do we get out of this? Or we fall into a position of guilt where our, we began to bankrupt ourselves. Instead of considering Christ. And this is the whole, the whole point of the exhortation. You get to consider Christ. Your lives aren't supposed to be defined by guilt. They're supposed to be defined by what we sang tonight already in freedom. They're supposed to be defined by understanding that the Holy Spirit in love convicts us so that we live a better life, can repent, and move forward. It's we're not supposed to, we're not made. You weren't created to carry all of the weight and the guilt and the pain that exists as a result of your sin. You weren't made to do that. This is why we get depressed. This is why we get overwhelmed. This is why we isolate. This is why we'll hide. Because you weren't created to bear that weight, but who was? Jesus bears that weight. To not consider Jesus is to basically look at the cross and say that's not enough. To not... To not consider Jesus is literally saying, Jesus, I know that You died, and I know that You bore all this weight, but I have to bear it too. And it's just a complete lack of understanding of the goodness of the Gospel. Consider Jesus. The gospel is supposed to produce joy. Why? Because we get to consider Jesus. We shouldn't walk around with our heads down because we blew it. We walk around with the joy of knowing that we've repented and have freedom in Christ. And that He loves us anyway. Verse
0: 2.
1: Who was faithful to Him and appointed Him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. He's going to begin to make this transition to say as you're considering Jesus, And we realize what he's done. He was faithful to what the Father asked him to do. We know that. Jesus says, I've come to do the will of the Father. I've come to fulfill his purpose. I've come to do what he's desiring me to do. I'm not here of my own volition. I'm not here of my own will. I'm here to fulfill the will of the Father. And this passage of Scripture is saying that Jesus did it well. And then he says just so you guys have some sort of reference as he's talking to Hebrews. I don't know if you guys have figured this out yet, but the book is actually called Hebrews, and it's a letter. And this is his audience. And he's saying, you remember that guy Moses? Like, you guys all tout that he did this. Like, he served the Lord well. And we know Moses made some major mistakes, If you don't know the end of Moses' story, he actually makes a big enough mistake that he's prevented from going into the promised land, right? But he's, he's bringing this to a place where those who are reading his letter in that culture and context are going to begin to make this comparison. Hey, that guy Moses that you guys talk about so much, that guy Moses that made such an impact... A guy, Moses, who it says walked, like met with the Lord face to face. There's this crazy passage of scripture where it says that, that the Lord would meet with Moses in such an intense way that he would walk out of his tent and his face would be glowing. And it would freak everyone out. And I, that would freak me out. And so he actually had to wear a veil over his face so that it didn't mess with people. That was his relationship with the Lord. And the Lord used him to do some incredibly mighty things, right? The, this, this, this analogy here where he's talking about God's house, it, it begins to reference that Moses is the beginning of building the house of God. That, that he, he begins to lay this foundation. That what Moses did in obedience helps all of us understand who the Father is. So we get this comparison. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, this is an interesting analogy because I, it's, it's accurate, it's in scripture, but it's not necessarily something that we think about very often. Like when you, I don't know, go to uh, Rhode Island, right? And you get to go see these mansions that were built in the Gilded Age. And you're like, wow. This is crazy. And I'm typically like, I don't understand this kind of money. It's so far outside of my comprehension. But I can appreciate the artistry. I can appreciate the the skill that went into building this thing. But most of the time, we kind of sit back and just go, whoa, this thing's massive. If we really investigate it, That's when we start appreciating the individual who built it. Like the craftsman that that carved the stone. Or you're looking at an amazing piece of artwork. A a painting or a sculpture. And you're going, wow, this is amazing. And then when you start really looking close to it, I'll say something like, I don't understand how how anybody could make that. Or paint that. And that's, that's what he's trying to... To push us toward. He's saying, look, as Moses came in to to begin the building of this house, the building of the church, and we'll describe that here in a moment, Jesus deserves more glory even just for for a whole lot of reasons, but for one very specific reason, because He's actually the builder of the house. Mm -hmm. And there's so much here that's so important. Because... What I have found in our culture is there's kind of two ways that people view the, the house that the Lord has built. So we're going to refer to the house as the, the church, the universal body of Christ to begin with. And the first one is they dishonor it. We hear it all the time. Oh, I'm religious. Oh, I'm spiritual. I even heard somebody tell me this week Literally said, I'm a Christian, but I don't like the church. And I thought, wow. I find it fascinating when a Christ follower will actually say, I can tolerate an unbeliever more than a Christ follower. I'm like, really? Wow, what does your household look like? I mean, if you apply that to the rest of your family, you're not going to have much of a family. Right? But the first scenario here is that we look at the house that's been built and we're like, that's the problem. It's, it's, this is the issue. And obviously, that's, that's not good. The second major issue with the... The view of the church is to revere the church over the Creator of the church. And we see this a lot too. Where the religious practices and the liturgy, the way that things are done, the building itself, all becomes uh, an, an, an idol. It all becomes this this thing that's being worshiped over the one that built the house. And when that happens, then we set the Creator aside and we begin to worship the creation. And both of these extremes occur a lot. But Jesus is the builder of the house. It says it here that the house has honor, but the builder of the house has more honor. And I think the analogy is designed to force us to push into thinking about somebody like Moses or the Hebrews to think about somebody like Moses and go, okay, Moses was commanded to do these things and he was obedient, but who was the one that commanded him to do it? What was Moses actually doing? What was Moses pushing individuals toward? And if you really dive in, you're going to find that everything that Moses did was preparing the way for Jesus to come. Everything that Moses did was getting... was an analogy of what Jesus might look like in every way. And I don't have time to go through all of them, but... When you think about just, we'll just pick one, the one that everybody knows. So, the freedom of the, the slaves from Egypt. Well, what did we sing about today? That Jesus sets us free. From what? The slavery of sin. So, why was it so important? that Moses obeyed God to get the Hebrews free because it was beginning to prepare and help us understand in a physical sense what Jesus was going to do in a spiritual sense. We can look at what Moses did and say as He freed them physically, Jesus frees us spiritually. As He freed them from the slavery of Egypt, Jesus frees us from the slavery of sin. And this just goes on and on and on. So many things that Moses did point us to Christ. The provision in the desert. I mean, I, 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 we could spend all day talking about how this works. But the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, even as great as Moses was, he was a servant of Jesus. He was, doing, he was building this foundation that Jesus is going to accomplish. He was preparing the way. In some ways, this is why it's so cool when you study an individual like John the Baptizer, right? What was John the Baptizer's job? He's an interesting dude, right? Scripture describes him as bizarre. He probably wouldn't have hung out with him. You probably would have been like, dude's weird. He wears weird clothes. He speaks weird. He eats weird food. Right? What was his job? His job was to come and prepare people for the coming of Christ. His job was to come and say, don't miss it. The Messiah's coming. The Savior's coming. This individual that all of history has been building up toward is coming and I don't want you to miss it. That's a, that was his job. That was basically Moses' job as well. I mean, it's all the prophet's job, but Moses is literally going, this is how we're going to represent what the significance of Jesus' coming is. He's not going to come and abolish the law. He's going to come and fulfill the law. He's not going to come and make you slaves. He's going to come and set you free. He's not going to come and demand things of you. He's going to come and love you. He's going to speak truth. He's going to represent God perfectly. He's going to show you what your purpose in life can be as a created being and should be. He builds on it. Let me read this again. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses is much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Uh, in this section like this, uh, I don't know where everybody falls on this. Whether you're hopefully you're finding this balance between these two extremes of how you see the church. The church is, Jesus says, I will come and build my church. Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church isn't a building. The church is the people of God. The church isn't programs. The church isn't a pastor. The church isn't a place where you get to feel like, oh, I feel so good and it's so great and, and I feel like I've checked the box so that God will smile at me. The church is people. The church is the group of people around the world that profess Jesus as the Son of the living God that believe the Gospel. The family extends beyond just... If we relegate the church to just something that happens on a Sunday morning, then we've completely missed it. And I think that's probably the reason that we go to extremes. To say that on the extreme that we don't like the church is to say that we don't like what Jesus is building. And to really say you don't like the church is to actually say you don't like your brothers and sisters. And that's not Jesus. Well, have you tried to love our brothers and sisters? They're crazy. (laughs) And I would agree with you. I'm not always easy to love. You're not always easy to love. I will upset you. You will upset me. That's just life. But all I will do is say this. Consider Jesus. Because if He had that same attitude, He wouldn't have died for you. Jesus builds His church on providing sacrifice and love to individuals who don't deserve it. Shouldn't maybe that power be something that defines the church as a whole? Mm. Jesus built His church on the groundings of truth of who He is. Therefore, shouldn't the church celebrate who God is instead of long for Him to be something that He isn't? Well, how do you get to that point? Consider... Jesus. Verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Some of you are going to geek out on this and some of you aren't, and that's okay. And I'm going to say something theological because it's important. If you're in this, like, oh, I love theology. I love studying theology. If you've ever heard the word dispensationalism, if you haven't, don't worry about it. It's an aside. This is one of the greatest defenses against it. Dispensationalism is this theory that God is different through different periods of time. And some of you have this ingrained in you. And my job, one of my jobs, one of, is just to help explain that God is the same person that he's been. All eternity. He never changes. This we call that immunability. He he's always the same. He he doesn't change the plan. It's systematic. It's constant. But a lot of us will read like the Old Testament, we're like, man, the God in the Old Testament was mad. He just like. He just went after it. Like it's crazy he's commanding people to kill others and do crazy stuff and what what is going on and i think for some of us we think oh when the when jesus came it's like he got saved <laughs> like god calmed down <laughs> right it doesn't work that way it's all the same The church that began with Moses and the law is the same church that now sees Jesus fulfill the law. It's the same. It's not God responding differently. It's not God went on His meds. It's not, he went from pure anger to love. It's not, oh, he's got this personality thing where, you know, back then as he evolved, he just became nicer. Does it, can it appear that way? I guess. But we have to read and understand that as all of this is moving forward into one understanding of the building of the church and who God is. That there's moments that we see God and go, wow, He is displaying His justice in such powerful ways. He is defining for us the severity of sin. He says there's ramifications to sin. There's ramifications for declaring yourself to be Creator and not Him. There's ramifications for you to declare that your life belongs to you and not to the Creator. And we see that pretty clearly in the Old Testament. And you're like, well, why don't we see it in the New Testament? We do. It's called the cross. And the cross was a much more horrific event displaying the the justice of God than Him commanding people to kill. It builds into it. But we also have love. God says the wages of sin is death from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, when they blew it. The curse exists, but at the very beginning, God says, But there's hope in one that's going to come and rescue you. God shows love in the Old Testament as He raises people up like Moses and the prophets to reveal Himself to us so we don't have to guess. He loves us so much that He doesn't say, good luck, figure it out. It's all there. It's cohesive. It's one story. It's a complex story, but it's so simple. God creates, puts us in perfection, we rebel, and the rest of history is about how we come back to God. And how does He do it? By building His house. By building His church. The foundation of what he began in what we call the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And the continuation and the fulfillment of that covenant through the person of Jesus and the new covenant being established with God's people. It's beautiful. It's not it's not chunky. I don't even know if that's the right word. It's not broken up into these fragments. It's It's a beautiful, redemptive story. And Moses faithfully testified to that. We talked about it. Why? Because everything he did pointed to Jesus. Verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We've talked about the sonship of God, of Jesus already, what that means. But this is pretty simple. The guest in the house is not as well revered as the owner of the house. It's that simple. Jesus owns the house. And as we follow the analogy we went through before, it's the, the owner of the house, the builder of the house, the architect of the house, the perfector of the house that receives more honor than the house itself. The author of Hebrews is using all of those analogies to draw us into this component where we go, whoa, this really isn't about me. And this really isn't about how i feel and this really isn't about my hurts and my habits and my hang-ups this is really about jesus so then he would say consider jesus we end with another exhortation so this passage of Scripture begins with one, ends with one. It gives us all of this amazing truth in the middle as we're attempting to compare Christ to a hero like Moses. And it says, and we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. <laughs> this changes everything. Like it's this exhortation that makes all the difference because it's the it, it prevents the disconnect it prevents you from going wow this is about all these people and all this stuff and jesus and he goes yes true but you are also in christ a temple of the holy spirit it it begins to define the the specific purpose of each individual. Paul enhances this when he says, look, there's lots who belong to the house. This house that Jesus has built who gets all of the honor and all of the glory because it's His house. And He built it. And He used all of history to get it to this point. But he says, I've done it I don't just see it as a collective. I see it also as an individual. And for the house to function correctly, each individual has to see themselves as part of it. And Paul says, so different gifts are given to different people. And what he's ultimately saying is in order for the house to thrive, it requires the individuals to understand their their unique opportunity within the house like Moses had a unique job to do, so do you. I don't know what that is. But you have one. You've been given gifts and talents. You've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to help you discern what those are. You've been given the freedom to use them for the glory of Jesus. Or you've been given the freedom to use them for your own glory. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, we have to consider Jesus so that the house thrives. We hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Confidence. Confidence. I like confident people. There's a major difference between confidence and arrogance. You can be very confident without being arrogant. You don't know the, and there's a lot of ways I could define this, but the key for a Christ follower, the difference between confidence and arrogance is where it's placed. Arrogance is always placed in ourselves, confidence is always placed in Christ. I can be confident that Jesus is who He says He is and that He will do what He says He will do and that He is sovereign and that He is loving and that He is just and that I am His. And nothing can take that away from you. You can be confident in that. So when somebody says, who are you? You say, I belong to Jesus confidently. What's your purpose? to glorify Jesus confidently. When the enemy comes and says, you're nothing. I'm wrecking you in guilt. You confidently say, Jesus already died for that. The next one's hope. Man, this world needs some hope. Watching wars break out or watching crazy things happen. Most of the time, people respond. I mean, you do this, you you respond in certain ways. Things become so urgent when there feels like there's no hope. You'll make desperate decisions based on the fact that you don't feel like hope exists. I'm in a hole. There's no hope. I've got to find a way out of here. But the hope that's being discussed here is the hope where we consider Jesus the hope of Christ. The reminder that He understands and knows. The reminder that the answer is always Him. (laughs) It's It's that goofy answer, right? Where you're like, It seems like if you're asked any trivia question in Scripture, you could probably say Jesus and it's going to be the right answer. (laughs) But it's accurate. But we don't do it. How, How does the church view anything as hopeless when you know in confidence that your soul is His for eternity? That doesn't sound right. We're hopeful. Why? Not because of our own abilities, but we're hopeful because Jesus promises. Jesus promises he's gonna come back. Jesus promises that he'll build his church. Jesus promises that people are gonna to come to, to him in faith. Jesus promises that all of his family will be there. Jesus promises that he will never let us go. Jesus promises that he understands. Jesus promises that He won't leave you or forsake you. All of that's hope. Because even when it feels like we're being forsaken, even it feels like we're praying and it, like our prayers are hitting the ceiling, it supersedes feelings. It's grounded in who Jesus is. The only way a Christ follower can lose hope is when you stop considering Jesus. I want to take this and close with this and kind of move it back up to the top. So at the end here it says, and we are His house. And you look back up at the analogy in verse 3 and it talks about the house that He's building. When you make the connection that you're a part of that house, it will provide you the confidence and the hope that you need in Christ to consider Him in everything. Everything. That is the greatest gift that, outside of Jesus Himself, it's the greatest gift you'll ever be given. To know that you're secure. To know that there's always hope. To know that you're part of something that is bigger than you. To know that it's not dependent upon you alone. To know that your brothers and sisters in Christ, as they're using their gifts and you're using your gifts and you're all considering Jesus, that lives are being changed and the kingdom of God thrives and grows and you would get to be a part of that. This beautiful picture. So what do we do with all this? I I've I've been processing this application for a little bit and it's to me it, it's it's relatively simple. So first, I'll talk to those of you, maybe this is the first time you've heard the gospel, maybe this is the first time you've heard your love, maybe this is the first time that you've heard that Jesus is in control of all things. Maybe this is the first time that you've heard that it's not religion that saves you, but Jesus does. And if that's the case, then your application to this is to consider Jesus for the first time in everything that you do and placing your hope and trust in Him alone. And you can do that every week, I tell you. Turn to the person next to you. Just ask them if they know Jesus. Yes? Let's go get some coffee. Some questions. Let's talk. You can come talk to me. Talk to Pastor Matt in the back. Scripture says consider Jesus. And I'm just going to make this argument and it's out of logic. You've considered everything else. and It hasn't worked. And you're like, well, how do you know? Because you're here. <laughs> you don't go this crazy if you've not considered everything else, right? <laughs> Consider Jesus. For the church, there's so much here. There's so much application here that it's, it's hard to point it all out, but I'd begin with this. And I asked it earlier, how, are you considering Jesus on a regular basis? Are your decisions grounded in Him? Is he even thought about? Next, are you building the house or tearing it down? Now, you can't tear it down. But you can definitely be a problem. One of the jobs of the pastor we're told in Scripture is to watch out for wolves who enter the flock. And that's a heavy burden, but it's also a reminder to the entire church that everybody who claims to be what they are doesn't mean that they are. And we go, well, how do we know? Scripture gives us a very clear understanding of how we know. You look at the fruit. Is their fruit? We look at how they treat the family. Do they value it? We look at how they use their gifts. Is it for them or for the, the house? We look at the way that they treat those who don't believe. We look at the way that they treat those who do. We look at the way that they view the church as a whole. Are they attempting to build it up and be a part like they've been called to be, or are they is it being used as in today's day and age, a consumer? Consumer-driven church means I'm gonna take as much as I can, just letting others serve me instead of really that I'm actually part of. The church. Where are you at on that? How's your hope level? One of the ways that people, I I think, that we can determine how we're. Functioning in the aspect of hope is how much joy is exceeding from us as individuals. Hopeless people don't have joy. So, what's the answer to all of this? Consider Jesus. Whether you Know Him personally, you're to consider Him. Whether you know Him personally, you're to consider Him. The exhortation is to consider Jesus. The last implication I'm going to give here is something that will help us relate because I doubt, I doubt, I don't know, maybe. If this is you, come talk to me because I would be really fascinated on how you got to this point. But I doubt that many of you are going, I revere Moses over everything. Right? I doubt it. Now obviously, this was the hero. And so this had to be discussed. But I would say that for us, it may not specifically be Moses, but what are you putting above it? Is it a person? Is it a relationship? Is it a job? It can be things that are relatively good, but if that's what you're leaning into, I I had a conversation about a month ago with somebody who was raised in a different traditional church, different tradition, and they believed that they were fine because they were putting their faith and their trust in their grandmother's prayers for them. And I thought, well, that's like putting your faith and trust in Moses, it's not going to work. So what are you putting above Jesus? It, it's probably not Moses, but it's probably something. What is it? Identify it. And then do the same thing we just talked about. Consider Jesus. So what we're gonna do is, we just every week, the ladies will come up, we'll sing a couple of songs, and we're inviting you to participate in communion. Communion is an opportunity for us to be reminded of what Jesus is. It is the ultimate consideration of Jesus. As it represents what He sacrificed for us. His body, His blood. And I think as Christ followers, one of the things that I'm just going to push you to consider as you take communion today is the cost that was paid for you to have the ability to consider him. Mm-hmm. And what the ramifications are to not. And then my prayer is that as you consider that, that what it leads to is a confidence and a hope in Jesus. That overwhelms you and encourages you and fills you with joy so that as we leave this place, we don't leave church. We are the church. If you're here and you don't know Christ personally, then I'm just going to encourage you, please don't partake in communion. I don't want you leaving here with a false hope. Don't let this become your Moses. Um, but if you are feeling the need to respond, then talk to somebody. Let me pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Lord, I, I often say that Your Word is so encouraging and so convicting at the same time. And I don't, I don't know how to balance these things sometimes. Lord, I'm grateful that You've never changed and can't. I'm grateful to know that who You are in eternity is who You will be in eternity. We're thankful that You are systematic, that You don't change Your mind, that You don't start new things. Lord, that we can depend upon You because You're always You. We thank You for the history that You've allowed us to see, the people like Moses who point us even in history to Christ to remind us that we can't do anything to earn or deserve what Jesus gives us. Lord, I pray for any individual in this room right now who has never given their faith their heart, their love, their trust to Christ. I ask that you would regenerate their heart right now. I pray, Lord, for your church. I pray that we would be reminded that we're to be a part, that we're to use our gifts, that our ultimate end is to consider you in everything and to serve you in confidence and hope in everything that we do. So Lord, would you grant us that? And would you use the Holy Spirit that's in us to reveal the times, the moments, the the circumstances that need to change and the things we need to repent over? And Lord, as we participate in communion, would you help us to consider you and all of its ramifications? And would you lead that to a confident hope and joy in you? Lord, don't let us leave here the same. We love You and we're grateful. In Jesus' name, Amen.